welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast. My name is Linda Cherry. This year, you will have the opportunity to hear from six Cedar Fort authors who love the Old Testament and are hoping to add some new perspective and a deeper understanding to your own study. This week, we will be studying Moses 1 and Abraham 3 with Casey Griffiths. Casey is the co-author of the book, 50 Relics of the Restoration. Casey and Mary Jane Woodger have provided a history of the church told through unique objects, including the seer stone used in the translation of the Book of Mormon. We wonder, why are these important accounts from Moses and Abraham missing from our Bible? Casey will explain how these two records help to restore important truths necessary to our understanding of the plan of salvation. My name's Casey Griffiths, and I'm going to walk you through Moses chapter 1 and Abraham chapter 3. Before we start these chapters, maybe just a little bit of introduction here uh, to begin with. Uh, This is the start of our study of the Old Testament, and the Bible is one of the most important books of Scripture that we have. The Old Testament in particular is really important to Latter-day Saints. But there's also a couple of things you should know so that you understand where Moses 1 and Abraham 3 are coming from because they are not in the Bible. They're actually found in the Pearl of Great Price. And knowing why they're in the Pearl of Great Price rather than the Bible is a vital part of our story today. So let me start with a quote uh, from the prophet Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith uh, was, was uh, receiving a vision that becomes section 76. In the introduction, he writes something that reveals his approach towards the Bible and uh, by, by turn the same approach that we might take ourselves. He said, it appears self-evident from what truths are left in the Bible um, that many important points touching the salvation of men have been taken from the Bible or lost before it was compiled. So Joseph Smith has this um, extreme reverence for the Bible. He loves the Bible, but because he has been tutored and taught by the angel Moroni and he studied the Book of Mormon, he knows that the Bible has been tampered with a little bit. The Book of Mormon itself uh, says that the Bible would come forth from the mouth of a Jew, that it would be produced by the Jewish people, but that many plain and precious truths would be removed. And then Nephi saw in vision the Latter-day Restoration, which includes Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, every Latter-day prophet, down to our current prophet. And as part of this, he also saw that the Lord would make steps to correct what was missing or had been removed from the Bible. This is in 1 Nephi chapter 13. And in verse 39, Nephi says, And after it had come forth, the Bible, I beheld other books, which came forth by the power of the Lamb, from the Gentiles unto them, the Jews, unto the convincing of the Gentiles and the remnant of the seed of my brethren, and also to the Jews that were scattered upon all the face of the earth, the records of the prophet that the records of the prophets and the twelve apostles of the Lamb are true. So Nephi sees these other records that come forth that are supposed to bolter, bolster and help us understand the Bible better and put back in place some of the truths that were lost from the Bible. Nephi even goes on to say, these last records, this is verse 40, which thou hast seen among the Gentiles shall, and here's the purpose of Latter-day Scripture, establish the truth of the first, which are of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So first purpose of Latter-day Scripture, this is the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, is to establish the truth of the Bible. Secondly, they shall make known the plain and precious things which have been taken 
away from them. So these books are supposed to put back in place some of the plain and precious truths that have been removed from the Bible. And it shall make known to all kindreds, tongues, and people that the Lamb of God is the Son of the Eternal Father and the Savior of the world, and that all men must come unto him or they cannot be saved. So the three purposes of Latter-day Saint scripture, number one, to establish the truth of what's already come before, two, to put back the plain and precious things that have been taken, and three, to testify of the truthfulness of the mission of the Savior. And there's probably no more sterling example of a Latter-day Saint text that does this than the book of Moses. So now that we've kind of set the table, let's go to Moses chapter one and take a look at it really quick. Uh, Moses chapter one is part of Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible. So most Latter-day Saints are aware that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon at a record amount of time. He publishes it and he organizes the church in April, 1830. But shortly after Joseph Smith completes the Book of Mormon translation and the organization of the church, he gets another commandment from the Savior, which is to translate the Bible. Now, translate is a is a fraught term. It's the term Joseph Smith used, so it's the term we're going to use, but it's not a translation in the traditional sense that he's translating from one language, Greek or Hebrew, into another language. Joseph Smith is pretty open about the fact that at this point in his life, he doesn't know Greek or Hebrew. He does learn them later on, but that's way down the road, five or six years down the road from this time period. If you look under the book of Moses, you're going to see a little date designation. It says June 1830. So Joseph Smith wasn't claiming that he had any ancient manuscripts or that he knew the languages. This is pure revelation. This is him receiving by the Holy Ghost uh, revelation that allows him to basically put back the plain and precious truths that have been removed from the Bible. And again, going back to Joseph Smith's first statement, this could be something that was removed from the Bible or even something that was lost before the Bible was compiled. But Moses 1 is effectively uh, Genesis 0. Um, it comes before the first chapter in the Old Testament, and is a prologue that explains where the five books of Moses came from to begin with. And this is really, really important for us to know, because a lot of scholars will speculate that uh, some of them would even say Moses didn't exist, that he's a, he's a mythical figure, or that if Moses did exist, all he did was steal from a bunch of uh, Mid-Eastern cultures and create a mishmash that became the lore of the, the Hebrews, basically. Moses 1 establishes that that's not the case. Uh, remember, the purpose of Latter-day Saint scripture is to establish the truth of the first. So Moses 1 uh, sets up the idea that the book of Genesis, which contains this vital history of the earth, everything from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Israel, it ends with Joseph in Egypt, is something that Moses was shown that he didn't steal this from another culture. He was shown these people and their struggles in vision and then commanded to write. The other thing that Moses 1 does a sterling job of is showing us exactly what Satan wants to have removed from the Bible. So we're not saying that everything that was lost from the Bible was lost uh, accidentally. Some of it was deliberate manipulation that removed some of the plain and precious things that uh, Satan didn't want us to know. Uh, chief among them, let's go to Moses chapter 1, says this, The words of God which he spake unto Moses at the time when Moses was caught up to an exceedingly high mountain. And he saw God face to face and talked with him, and the glory of God was upon Moses, therefore Moses could endure his presence. So Moses receives this information directly from God, and 
What's the first idea that's introduced that's not present in the book of Genesis? Jump down to verse 6. I have a work for thee, Moses, my son. Thou art in the similitude of mine only begotten. Mine only begotten is and shall be the Savior, for he is full of grace and truth, and there is no God beside me. And all things are present with me, for I know them all. So what's missing? Christ is missing. It's clear from the book of Moses that the early prophets, and this is not just Moses, the book of Moses makes it clear that all the way back to Adam, the mission and nature of Jesus Christ were known to these ancient prophets, that these prophets knew about Jesus and his atoning sacrifice, and that there was a plan in place to offset the effects of the fall of Adam and Eve. Moses is not only told that there is a Savior, he's told that he's in a similitude of the Savior, that he's going to do something like what Jesus would do. And and here's another important piece of knowledge, that Moses is also God's son. So God does draw a line here between calling Moses my son in the sense that Moses is the spirit son of the Father and Jesus being different as being the only begotten son of the Father. In other words, Moses is a spirit child of God. Jesus is the spirit and physical child of God. But right off the bat, you can see that the early books of the Bible were supposed to have a Christian context that was excised or removed from them. Moses knew who Jesus Christ was. He knew that the Son of God was going to come and be the Savior and that Jesus was the key figure in the plan of salvation. Now, that's a pretty big thing to remove. It's also pretty big to remove the idea that Moses was literally God's son and that Moses has this divine purpose uh, down here on earth to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. But let's keep going and, and see what else God has to put back into the book of uh, the Old Testament through the revelation that he's giving to Joseph Smith here. So verse 8, it came to pass that Moses looked and beheld the world upon which he was created. And Moses beheld the world and the ends thereof and the children of men which are and which were created. And he greatly marveled and wondered. And all this is so overwhelming that it says in verse 9, Moses is just overcome. He collapses to the earth. He was left unto himself, verse 9 says, and he fell unto the earth. And it was the space of many hours before Moses did again receive natural strength like unto man. And he said unto himself, now for this cause, I know that man is nothing, which thing I'd never supposed. But with mine own eyes, I have beheld God, not with my natural, but my spiritual eyes. For my natural eyes could not have beheld, for I would have withered and died in his presence. But his glory was upon me, and I beheld his face, and I was transfigured before him. Again, one of the central points they're making here is that the information that's going to come in the book of Genesis is not stuff that Moses made up or borrowed from other cultures. It's stuff that he saw, that the inhabitants of the earth were shown to him. And the true story of earth's uh, history is demonstrated to Moses. So two things put in place. Where do the scriptures come from? Number two, what's the mission of Jesus Christ? And then creeping up on us in verse 12 is the next thing that has been excised or cut out or removed from the early chapters of the Bible, and that is Satan. It says in verse 12, It came to pass that when Moses had said these words, behold, Satan came tempting him, saying, Moses, son of man, worship me. 
So Satan shows up. This is kind of astounding too, because the name Satan doesn't show up in the Old Testament until the book of Chronicles. And in Chronicles, it's just used as a Hebrew term, Satan, which means adversary. The actual description of Satan doesn't show up till Isaiah, when Isaiah talks about Satan falling from heaven. One of the things that Satan removed from the Bible was himself. The, the biblical account of Adam and Eve, for instance, does not mention that Satan was there. It just talks about a serpent that tempted Eve. It completely excises Satan from the story. If you flip forward to Moses chapter 4, when the story is told there, it's told that Satan was part of this, and it actually gives the backstory of the council in heaven. So not only do we need to know that the Savior is real and where the scriptures came from, but we also need to know that there's a bad guy out there, that there's a person that wants to destroy us, and we also get a little window into how Satan operates and what his motivating goals and desires are. The first thing that Satan asked Moses to do is worship me. And Moses gives the appropriate response here as well. Verse 13, it came to pass that Moses looked upon Satan and said, who art thou? For behold, I am a son of God in the similitude of his only begotten. And where is thy glory that I should worship thee? Behold, I could not look upon God except his glory should come upon me and where I transfigured before him, but I can look upon thee in the natural man, is it not so? Surely. So right after Moses has this tremendous tremendous spiritual experience where God introduces himself to him, God shows him the world and all its inhabitants, and Moses is weak, Satan comes along. Here's the pattern. Uh, Satan tends to uh, attack and assail us when we're weak. Uh, Satan is still, after all these years, trying so desperately to secure the honor of, of man by having them worship him. Satan really doesn't have anything to offer, and Moses, because he's experienced the real thing, the genuine item, is astute enough to basically say, there's no glory around you. This is a totally different experience than what I had when God was with me, and why would I worship you? Because I really know who and what I am. I am the Son of God. Now, that is powerful stuff, and powerful things that convince us that you know, when we get confronted with the same thing, when Satan approaches us, when we're weak or tired or stressed, we need to respond with the same answer. I am a son or I am a daughter of God. And Moses even harkens back to his earlier spiritual experiences. Verse 17, he says, uh, he gave me commandments when he called me out of the burning bush saying, call upon God in the name of mine only begotten and worship me. And Moses responds to Satan and says, I will not cease to call upon God I have other things to inquire of him. His glory has been upon me. Wherefore, I can judge between him and thee. Depart hence, Satan. So Moses doesn't take the bait. He immediately explains, I've had spiritual experiences. I actually know what God is like from personal experience. You're not God. Why would I worship you? Get out of here. But Moses's authority at this point in his life isn't enough to cause Satan to leave. Moses is just telling him to go away. Satan repeats the plea. Verse 19. And now when Moses had said these words, Satan cried with a loud voice and ranted upon the earth and commanded, saying, I am the only begotten. Worship me. He's pleading with him. This depicts Satan for what he really is, just a sad, desperate person that needs attention, that is desperate to be worshipped because he knows that he's not the real deal. Now, Moses, it says in verse 20, began to fear exceedingly. And as he began to fear, he saw the bitterness of hell. Nevertheless, calling upon God, he received strength. And he commanded, saying, Depart from me, Satan, for this one God only will I worship, which is the God of glory. 
So now he uh, invokes the name of God, but it's actually the third time that Moses asked Satan to leave that he says the correct thing. Verse 21, Satan began to tremble and the earth shook. And Moses received strength and called upon God saying, in the name of the only begotten, depart hence, Satan. And it came to pass that Satan cried with a loud voice, with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And he departed hence even from the presence of Moses that he beheld him not. So it's the third time when Moses invokes the name of the only begotten, the Savior. When he uses the authority of Jesus Christ, Satan has no recourse, no resistance, and he has to depart, and he leaves. So in sequence, it's interesting. Moses meets God. He learns about his nature, about the nature of the Savior, and then immediately, while Moses is weak, Satan comes along tempting him. Moses knows enough at this point to recognize who Satan is, what Satan's objective is, and also that Satan doesn't have power over God. Right in the opening chapter of the Bible, Moses um, 1, we're told that this isn't a war between equal powers. Uh, There's no question about who has greater power and who can do more things. God is superior to Satan. Satan has to obey when he's commanded in the name of Jesus Christ. He just doesn't have any choice when it comes down to it, and he does obey, and he departs. Now, having passed this test, Um, Moses is again filled with the Holy Ghost, this is verse 24, and brought into the presence of, uh, and and told about the Father and the Son. Um, The Lord goes on explaining, um, verse, verse 25, Blessed art thou, Moses, for I, the Almighty, have chosen thee, and thou shalt be made stronger than many waters, for they shall obey thy command as if thou wert God. So now he's been given the power to do certain things. And Moses has uh, another revelation. He says, verse 28, he beheld the inhabitants thereof. There was not a soul which he beheld not, and he had discerned them by the Spirit of God, and their numbers were great, even as the numbers of the seashore. Now, uh, it's interesting because God starts to speak to him too. And now he, in the first chapter of Scripture, basically starts to lay out the reason why things exist. Verse 31, Moses stood in the presence of God and talked with him face to face. And the Lord God said unto Moses, for mine own purpose, if I made these things, here is wisdom, and it remaineth in me. By the word of my power have I created them, which is mine only begotten Son, who is full of grace and truth. And this is the part that I, I really love, so stick with me here. Worlds without number have I created. I also created them for mine own purpose, and by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. So right here in the first chapter of Scripture, Moses is told that this isn't the only world where God does his mighty works and where the power and presence of God are located, that God has created worlds without number through Jesus Christ. This lines up really well with later revelations we'll get in the Doctrine and Covenants, where Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon both see that Jesus is the Savior of the world, plural, and that the inhabitants of these worlds are begotten sons and daughters unto God. That's in section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, the next phrase, um, verse 34, is a phrase that I'm just going to be honest. I don't know exactly what it means, but it opens some tantalizing possibilities. It says, the first man of all men have I called Adam, which is many. This seems to suggest that not only has God created all these different worlds, numberless, he says, which we're just barely on our own realizing that's not an exaggeration, that's the literal truth, but that God has placed his sons and daughters on these worlds, that Adam is one of many, and that the saga we're participating in on our world is a small part of the grand saga of God that takes place throughout the universe. And as wonderful as this is, it makes us a 
uh, a universal intergalactic religion. It allows us to see how powerful God really is and look out in the universe and not feel small, but feel like we're a part of something really great and beautiful and wonderful. This is the most frustrating verse of scripture to me, because as soon as Moses gets a glimpse of all these wonderful worlds, God closes the curtain and says, verse 35, but only an account of this earth and the inhabitants thereof give I unto you. For behold, there are many worlds that have passed away by the word of my power, and there are many that now stand, and innumerable are they unto man. But all things are numbered unto me, for they are mine, and I know them. Now, it's frustrating that he closes the curtain on us, but is there a reason to do this? Yeah. He, he basically, here in the first chapter of Scripture, sets the limits of what he's going to do. I'm only going to tell you about this world. There's a couple other places in, in Abraham, uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord references the other worlds, but he, he basically says, I'm going to focus on you, your world, and what you need to know in order to be saved. Then he says, but I just want you to know that these worlds are also under my control. Many have gone through the plan of salvation, have passed away by the word of my power, and many now stand, and they're really incomprehensible to you. That's why he's not telling us the entire story, because we wouldn't be able to comprehend it in the state that we're in. But he's just assuring us, I know them, I know what's going on with them, and I am able to handle what's happening there. So why don't we have the story of all these other worlds? Wouldn't it be neat to know the works of God? Uh, the Lord says basically right now, let's focus on you and your world, because I don't know if you can quite comprehend yet exactly what's going on with me. So Moses, who is an Iron Age person, who literally probably only knows the couple hundred miles that he's been able to traverse in his life, is now shown the universe and told, I'm, I want you to know how powerful I am. Here's my glory and my majesty, but I'm not going to tell you everything yet because I just don't know if you're ready to handle that. Now, in understanding that, you could noticeably be a little overwhelmed, and God tries to take him from this infinite scope down to this intimate moment to understand why God does what he does. So let's go on. Verse 38. One earth shall pass away, and the heavens thereof, even so shall another come. There is no end to my works, neither to my words. And then the most quoted verse in all of Latter-day Saints scripture, because God explains his reason for doing these things, why he does what he does. This is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So God controls this vast universe, but... What he's really concerned about is you and me. What, what makes him happy, what gives him purpose, the reason why the universe exists is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of God's sons and daughters. This is Moses's introduction into this whole world. And he tells Moses in verse 40, write these things, and that many of these things, he warns them in verse 40, will be removed from the book, but don't worry, Verse 41, I will raise up another like unto thee, and they shall be had again among the children of men, among as many as shall believe. And then verse 42, which is written to Joseph Smith. That's why we're not totally sure if this chapter was removed from the Bible. That's my theory. Or if it was lost before it was compiled. At least the last verse isn't part of the original biblical text because it's addressed to Joseph Smith. It says, these words were spoken unto Moses in the mount and the name of which shall not be known among the children of men. And now they are spoken unto you, Joseph Smith, and whoever read this chapter right now, show them not unto any except them that believe, even so. Amen. 
So the pattern here is you have a person like Moses. Moses doesn't know what his full lineage is. He doesn't really know that much about God. But here's where he comes to understand and know that God is the God, not just of Egypt or of the Hebrews, or even just of the earth. He's the God of the universe. That God has a son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who's going to help us and assist us through the plan of salvation. Moses also learns that there is a bad guy, that there's another team out there that doesn't want him to be saved. And Moses learns that God's entire reason for existing is to help us, to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. Now, this pattern, it's a prophetic pattern, which, by the way, has mirrors in Enoch and uh, Noah and even Joseph Smith, where a prophet receives an astounding call, is tempted, overcomes it. That's a pattern that also the Savior himself is going to face in the New Testament right after he starts his ministry, Satan tempts him, is a pattern that's found throughout the scriptures. So Moses 1 is the introduction to the scriptures and basically sets the stakes. Here's the good guys. Here's the bad guys. Here's what you need to know about yourself and your role in this cosmic drama. And what a great way to kind of start the ball rolling when it comes to the scriptures. Now, as part of our scripture block, and I think that this was wise on behalf of the curriculum committee, they also include Abraham chapter 3. Now, the book of Abraham is a whole different deal from the book of Moses. The book of Moses is part of Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible. Joseph Smith, by and large, completes his translation of the Bible by 1833, though he continues tinkering with it for the rest of his life, and it's not fully published or known until after Joseph Smith dies, the book of Abraham comes from a different source. Joseph Smith comes into contact with a man named Michael Chandler, who uh, has several mummies, uh, authentic mummies from Egypt and papyri that come along with them. The book of Abraham is linked in some way to this papyri. We do have some fragments of the papyri, but they're not the book of Abraham, clearly based on what we have. The book of Abraham is either something was translated from papyri that we currently don't have, or it's a direct revelation like the book of Moses that was given to Joseph Smith to illuminate the history of Abraham. But what it does is once again introduce us to another young man like Moses. Um, Moses comes from high birth. Uh, this individual, whose name is Abram, he later is renamed Abraham. Um, Abram means father. Abraham means father of multitudes. Is 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 from low birth. So Moses comes from the high courts of the Egyptians. Abraham is from a tough spot. He comes from a bad family. You you'll get to get this when you go to um, Abraham chapter one. Uh, Abraham's father doesn't believe in God, or at least not the true God. And Abraham's father participates in some pretty gruesome rituals that cause the sacrifice of several righteous people. Abraham himself is slated for sacrifice by his father's religions, by the wicked priests that administer that religion. When God swoops in, um, rescues Abraham, and plucks him out of obscurity to make him the progenitor and ancestor of the faithful. Whether you're a literal descendant of Abraham or not, today you're, you're known as the seed of Abraham if you accept the covenants and gospel of Jehovah, and by extension, Jehovah's Jesus Christ. So Abraham chapter 3 is included alongside Moses 1 because it goes back to the beginnings. It goes even further back than Moses because Moses introduces us to the work of Moses and the scope of God in the universe. But Abraham 3 goes even further back to the creations of God. It says, verse 1, I, Abraham, had the Urim and Thummim, which the Lord my God had given unto me in Ur of the Chaldees. I saw the stars. They were very great. 
and that one of them was nearest unto the throne of God, and there were many great ones which were near unto him. So Moses uh, sees the universe. Abraham, likewise, through the medium of the Urim Thummim, sees into the wider universe, gets the bigger picture of what's happening. God isn't just a God that reigns over a group or a tribe here on earth, or even just the earth, but the entire universe. Um, Moses and, and Abraham both behold the works of God, but Abraham's more specific. He says that he beheld the stars in the heaven and that the greater ones governed the lesser ones. He even goes on in verse three. These are the governing ones. The name of the great one is Kolob because it's near unto me, for I am the Lord thy God. I have set this one to govern all those which belong to the same order as that upon which thou standest. So uh, this is fairly basic um, physics. <laughs> a bigger object exerts more power over a smaller object. And Kolob, which he designates here as the star that... Um, oversees all the others, is the greatest one of all. He even talks about some funky concepts um, that Joseph Smith wouldn't have known about, but that make sense to us as 21st century people. For instance, he says, verse 4, The Lord said unto me, By the Urim and Thummim, the Kolob was after the manner of the Lord, according to its times and seasons and the revolutions thereof. The one revolution was a day unto the Lord, and after this manner of reckoning, it being 1,000 years, according to the time appointed upon which thou standest, this is the reckoning of the Lord's time, according to the reckoning of Kolob. Now, a lot of people get really, really obsessed with the idea of time, and that the Lord is saying that a 1,000 years to us is one day to Kolob, and this is also repeated in some of Peter's writings that are found in the New Testament. I think the main thing to keep in mind here is that time is relative. That's a term that won't become popular until the 20th century in Albert Einstein, but he's just basically saying that time is relative throughout the universe based on where you live. There's other places where it says that the past, the present, the future are all before God. That's one of the reasons why we can have faith and trust in God, because he knows the end from the beginning. But rather than getting too specific and trying to do the calculations of, oh, if I live a hundred years in earth time, I've been gone from God's presence 2.4 hours. Just keep in mind that time is flexible. In the Book of Mormon, it says it even more plainly. It says time, this is in Alma 40, verse 10, is measured only unto men, but all things are known unto God. So time works this way for us, but it clearly works differently for God. And a lot of people miss that. Now, as we're going through this, it goes through basically explaining that these spheres, like Kolob, govern lesser spheres and give light to other ones, and then basically go and project their light into other things. It, it's clear that what the Savior is trying to teach Abraham here is the order of the universe. The greater things govern lesser things, and help them through the process. In fact, I'll go out on a limb here and say that Kolob is a representation of Jesus Christ himself, a greater person who was designated to help lesser people become great. In fact, you can see how this works. If you jump down to verse 14, uh, in the nighttime when the Lord, it was in the nighttime when the Lord spake these things unto me. So Abraham is out gazing up at the stars, but he has this revelation about the nature of the universe. And the Lord uses stars as another analogy for the covenant that he's going to make with Abraham. I will multiply thee and thy seed after thee, like unto these, the stars. And if thou count, can't, if thou canst count the number of sands, so shall be the number of thy seeds. So he basically uses the stars to explain that there's an order of greatness and that Abraham himself is going to become one of the great ones. Now, imagine how meaningful this would be to a kid like Abraham who 
um, grows up in a family where uh, we don't know exactly if he was mistreated, but his dad did offer him up for human sacrifice. Uh, I think anybody that comes from a rougher family maybe can appreciate Abraham and what the Lord's trying to tell him here that, hey, doesn't matter if you come from a rough background, what I see in you, I'm going to take and mold and make better. And from this vision of the universe, the Lord next gives him a vision that's not just of space, but of time. So jump down to verse 22, okay? Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones. So just like Abraham has seen the stars, that the greater governs the lesser, now he's taken to a vision in time and sees the time before the world was and the intelligences that are there. And he recognizes many of these intelligences as noble and great. Verse 23, God saw these souls that they were good. He stood in the midst of them. And he said, these I will make my rulers. For he stood among those that were spirits. And he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, thou art one of them. Thou wast chosen before thou wast born. So Abraham, this kid that comes from a rough family that has a has a terrible background that maybe spent days thinking, you know, why why am I not more loved? Why why was I placed into this harsh environment? Is told, no, I want you to know what you were before you came here to earth. You were one of the noble and great ones, and you were chosen before you were born. Abraham was chosen, and God is doing the same thing he did with Moses in Moses chapter 1. Moses, you're my son. Abraham, you were chosen. You might have wound up in a family that's less than ideal here on earth, but you come from the greatest of all families. You're literally a child of God. And Abraham um, goes on to say, verse 24, there stood one among them that was like unto God. He said unto those who are with him, we will go down, for there is space there, and we will take of these materials, we will make an earth whereon these may dwell, and we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. So who's that one that uh, stands out among all of them? Uh, this is Jesus Christ, right? Just like Kolob is the greater sphere that governs the lesser spheres, Christ is the greater intelligence that governs and helps the lesser intelligences. One of the things that I absolutely love about this passage is that almost all passages that describe the creation of the earth describe Heavenly Father as kind of the architect, and Jesus Christ as the carpenter that builds the world. But Abraham 3 makes this effort collaborative. It's not just that Jesus uh, created the earth. He invites the other intelligences, the people like Abraham that were there to come with him and help him to create the earth. And he also states in verse 25, the purpose of life will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. So the reason why we come here to earth is to be proven, to have the opportunity to demonstrate that we have the right stuff and that we can do all things which the Lord has commanded us to do. Lord goes on to say, they who keep their first estate, that's our pre-mortal state, will be added upon. And they who keep not their first estate shall not have glory in the same kingdom with those who keep their first estate. And they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. So a couple of questions. Number one, you already kept your first estate. If you're here and you have a body, you passed the first test. The question is, will you keep your second estate, which is your life down here on earth? Will you prove yourself, prove that you can be compassionate, kind, and Christ-like uh, the same way that God wants you to be and what he created you to do. 
And we don't have to do this on our own. Uh, it also, in verse 27, ends the next part of the saga, which is we've created this world. The object of the world, the reason why it exists, is to prove these intelligences, to show if they can become something more than they are at this current state. Verse 27, And the Lord said, Whom shall I send? And one answered, Like unto the Son of Man, Here am I, send me. And another answered, Here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. Now, I think this is an important thing to note, too. God chose Jesus Christ as the Savior. Sometimes we act like what happened in premortality was a kind of student body election, that uh, both Jesus and Lucifer volunteered, and Jesus got more votes than Lucifer, and that's why he's the Savior, and that's the only reason. The text in the book of Abraham makes it clear that we didn't choose Jesus Christ as our Savior, that God chose Jesus Christ as the Savior, that it was always in the plan of God that Jesus Christ would be the Savior, because after God, Jesus was the greatest intelligence among this particular group of intelligences, and greater helps the lesser, and greater allows the lesser to become the greater, to become like them. But remember, it wasn't us that chose Jesus Christ. Though we did choose him as our personal Savior, God chose him to be the key figure in the plan of salvation and the Savior of men and women, wherever they live on whatever world that they're at. Then it sums up in one verse the conflict that happens in premortality. The second was angry and kept not his first estate, and at that day many followed after him. We don't know how many followed after him. We like to quote the phrase one-third, but the scriptures always say a third part, which could mean a lot of different things. Um, but again, I, I like that these two um, chapters are right next to each other, because in Moses 1, Moses learns about God, he learns about Jesus Christ, he learns his true identity, and then he learns that there is an adversary that wants to stop him from being what he's supposed to be. In Abraham 3, Abraham learns about God, he learns about Jesus Christ, he learns about himself, and then right at the end of this chapter, he also learns that there is a person that didn't want this plan to take place, that rebelled against God, and that wants Abraham to fail in this mission down here on earth. These are some of the most important things uh, that a person can't know. Um, these are things that are absolutely vital for us, having a clear idea of the plan of salvation and how it works around us. A couple of years ago, back when he was alive, one of my favorite teachers, Boyd K. Packer, talked about the plan of salvation. And he said, hey, it's like a three-act play. Now, maybe some of you haven't seen a three-act play, so imagine a movie trilogy, Star Wars or The Lord of the Rings or whatever you want to. President Packer said one of the difficulties is that we find ourselves in the middle of Act 2. Imagine you're in the middle of the second movie and you don't know what happened in the first movie. You don't know who the good guys and the bad guys are, who you're supposed to be cheering for, who you're supposed to be cheering against, what the stakes are, what they're fighting for, any of that stuff. The reason why Moses 1 and Abraham 3 are so vital is because they put that knowledge back into our heads. They help us understand that you, yes, you are a son or daughter of God that you have this immense inheritance, that you're the child of the ruler of the universe, and the universe is an innumerable collection of worlds, more than a person in your state can even comprehend. Not only do you know that you're special, but that you have a Savior 
that God designated specifically a greater intelligence to help you through your life down here on earth. And as important as it is to know that there's people on your side, that there are people that are cheering for you and rooting for you and wanting you to make it to the end and keep your second estate, it's also important to know that there are people that would have you give up your second estate, that would have you fall just like they have and lose all the things that are important to you. Like Moses and like Abraham, when we read these passages, we are empowered to know exactly what Satan is when he approaches us and tries to tempt us to worship him. Just like Moses, we should be able to say, where's your glory that I should worship you? Just like Moses, we should be able to have the kind of experiences where we can say, I know what God is. I know that he's spoken to me. I know who I am, and I know who Jesus Christ is. And just like Moses and Abraham, we should also have the courage to stand up to Satan and use the authority and power of Jesus Christ to cast Satan out of our lives. The biggest and most difficult questions that a person wrestles with in this life are, where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? And these two simple little chapters in the Pearl of Great Price basically answer all those questions. So the scriptures start off with a bang. They start off by telling us exactly what the stakes are and where we're in this. And that's maybe where um, the whole watch a movie trilogy analogy breaks down because we are not idle spectators in this story. We're not just sitting there watching the movie and being caught up in the emotion of what's happening to the characters on the screen. We are characters in the story. This is ultimately not just the story of God, Jesus Christ, and their battle against Satan and the other forces of evil. This is a story of us. And the fact that we have already been victorious in the first act of the story, but now the question is, will we stay true to that testimony that we had even before we came here? People like Moses and Abraham needed to know these things to make it through their prophetic missions, which were incredibly difficult. And just like you have a, a, a mission to accomplish down here on earth, it might not be something like what Moses or Abraham did. You're not going to be expected to lead the children of Israel out of captivity and into freedom, but in the daily battles that we fight in our daily life, it's very, very important that we know that we are God's children, that there is a savior for us, that there is an adversary that's trying to stop us. But the people that are on our side are literally the people that lead and guide and govern the entire universe. If we know these things, it can give us the courage to go out and face the daily battles that we have to face because we'll really know who we are, where we come from, and most importantly, why we're here. I'm so grateful for these truths and grateful uh, for uh, the revelations given to the prophet Joseph Smith that allow us to know the full and clear story. And I'll just say this, as we embark on our study of the Old Testament this year, which I'm really excited for, I love the Old Testament. It's also important that we keep that healthy perspective in mind that the Old Testament is best understood if we know these truths, if we understand where it came from, how we fit into the drama, and why these stories matter so much for us. Because it's not a storybook. This is a set of stories that's vital to us to know what we got to do, uh, who we can rely on, and what the stakes are in the battle that we're fighting down here on earth. So I just bury my testimony, the truthfulness of the scriptures. So grateful for them and for the men and women the sacrifice to bring them and put them into our hands. I'm grateful for Jesus Christ and his guiding influence over these prophets as well, and the goodness that he's shown me in my life. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 
Okay, that's been our study for this week. I hope you had a good experience. If you have any questions, um, please feel free to reach out and contact me. <laughs> and also, thankful to Cedar Ford for giving us this opportunity to walk through the scriptures with you and help you know and understand these vital truths in your life. 50 Relics of the Restoration highlights the history of the church through sacred objects, gathered throughout its history. Included with the objects are some of the most vivid and interesting stories of the Latter-day Saints. One of the most intriguing aspects of our church's history is that it is still being discovered. Just as early Christians sought out pieces of the cross or searched for the location of Noah's Ark, it is natural for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to seek to interact with their history. The objects in this book constitute a glimpse at the richness of days gone by and allow us to see, heft, and handle those now priceless objects that our forebearers did. In this volume, you will find photos and commentary on objects such as The Brown Seer Stone Liberty Jail's door, David Patton's rifle, Joseph Smith's handkerchief, Jamesy, Talmage's Jesus the Christ manuscript, Joseph and Hiram Smith's death masks, Hiram Smith's martyrdom clothing, and much more. Brought to you by Cedar Fort Publishing and Media.